God did not intend marriages to be heaven, but he did intend for them to point to heaven. This is why Jesus used the marriage celebration as a symbol of the climax of history when he returns and finally God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's join our study leader, Dave Wurzen, for the ultimate union, catching a glimpse of eternity. Can your marriage give you a touch of eternity? I think it can give you a touch, but can it give you eternity? I think one of the major reasons why marriages are falling apart at such an alarming rate in our culture is that we put too much weight on that. For example, just think of all the fairy tales. How do all the fairy tales go? Boy meets girl, whether it's Ariel or Cinderella, whatever it is, boy meets girl, conflict, dad opposes it, or they have whole dimensions, they have to conquer ocean, land, then the little mermaid, all kinds of stuff. Finally, at the crisis of the story, the opposition is overcome, and they kiss, and they live happily, everybody tell me, they live happily ever after. We're going to have a marriage retreat. One of the things that they were planning that retreat, they were talking about that the real struggle in a marriage is not what happens before they kiss at the end. I now ask you to kiss your bride. Remember that moment? And then everybody goes, da, 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 and the person leaves the church. That's when my brother starts to play, the fight is on. That's an old hymn, the fight is on. That's the real struggle of marriage. So they were talking about how that in the marriage retreat that they were doing, they needed to really wrestle with that struggle. Well, I want to go underneath what I think are a lot of the struggles we have, not just in our marriage relationships, but in a lot of relationships. It's that we put too much weight on them. You see, our culture is taught, little girls are taught from the time they're small, that when she finally meets Prince Charming, that he will be able to meet her needs that he'll be able to be her total companion. He'll be able to be her friend. He'll be her lover. He'll meet all of those needs and vice versa. This is the perfect woman. And when I'm married to her, my life will be totally fulfilled. And then we suddenly wake up after the honeymoon and we're really struggling because we married a frog. The prince turned into a frog instead of the other way around. And that's where the real struggle comes. And I think underneath that, in every one of our hearts, We have a longing for the perfect situation. We have the longing for the perfect environment. In fact, one of the things I I see in our culture is that we judge everything just from this present lifespan. It goes from about zero to about 85. If you analyze, you know, the people that die, and if they're really, really strong, they live into their 90s and their 100s. And, And we boast about that, and we praise the Lord for those in our own church family, that the Lord's given that a tremendous strength. But our culture tends to look at things just from this present life perspective. You see, as you grow older, you want to reach back. Now you say, well, that's just what movie actors do. Any of you have friends that on Facebook have suddenly rediscovered their high school friends? A lot of you have, right? When they find their friends on Facebook, they suddenly start to reach back for their high school sweethearts. Why do you do that? Because you want to start again because that'll give you a taste of eternity. You see, nobody really wants to take the flow of life, and this is one of the major things that destroys our marriage, because in American culture today, a tremendous pressure is on you that you need to have eternity right now. And so you want to reach back, you want to start over again. Do you think that the plastic surgery really makes you young? doesn't really make you young. 
In fact, one of the greatest gifts that we as the body of Christ can give to our culture is people that accept this present life, that are very realistic about what it can do, what it can't do. And we also have this incredible hope for the future. In fact, I believe as we talk about your marriage, we started out talking about that marriage started out in Genesis chapter 2 where the living creator created a man and a woman and he united them together to be able to serve him in this glorious garden, ruling over that little portion of God's creation. The redemptive story started right away because the first man and woman blow it completely and they sin. And Adam plunges the whole human race into the curse of death. But then God in the Garden of Eden, just before chapter 3 closes, it doesn't even tell us, but we know that animals were slain. So it's the first sacrifices. And we know that they couldn't use fig leaves to cover their shame, but they had to use animals. It's the very first time that we have human beings clothed, and the Lord God of the universe, the ultimate daddy, the ultimate king, sacrifices animals, and he covers their shame. He covers their nakedness with those skins of the animals. And that pictures the beginning of the redemptive story that's going to go all the way through until John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, and John's gospel presents Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice that covers our shame and our guilt. I see a lot of friends that I have that they're trying to live just in terms of this present life, and then because marriage can't support eternity, it doesn't produce eternity, that it all comes crashing down. But I do want you to know that God does mean for your marriage. Like if you're sitting here married, he wants all the younger kids that are looking forward to getting married. He wants all of those that have experienced marriage that maybe be, or may be looking forward to a reunion when the Lord Jesus unites us in his incredible time. He wants all of us to realize that in marriage, it's not eternity, but it gives you a taste of eternity. It's like a great big signpost that says eternity lies ahead. One of the great ideas of the Bible is that it's very honest about your present existence, very honest about the curse, very honest about disease, very honest about the struggle with sin. And yet, as you face the reality of life and the suffering that it brings, it helps you also to still have hope. And if you have hope in your marriage, it'll help you to keep on going. And I believe that one of the most important things in your marriage today is that you realize that your husband-wife relationship isn't eternity, so you wives need to stop trying to make your husband over into that perfect mate. You'll kill him. And most of you have found out if you've been married for 20 minutes that he resists you constantly changing him, constantly carving on him, constantly trying to make him over into something. The same thing's true for you men. Your wife just can't be that ultimate person. Only Jesus can. But when you realize that when Jesus is at the top of your triangle, then you can really live close. And you can be realistic and you can see each other's faults. You can see each other's strengths. You can see the power of the Spirit. And if you've received the invitation that Jesus has given you, then Jesus is present in your life and he's taking you to an ultimate wedding celebration. And that helps you to run from the time I got married when I was 20. And now I can keep running strong. 
And I can still be devoted to the partner that I made those covenant vows of marriage to. And I can keep allowing God's grace. Say, Dave, how does our present marriage point us to the ultimate invitation? In Ephesians 5, Paul takes marriage and says that a Christian marriage is ultimately the picture of this incredible drama of redemption where the husband's supposed to act in the role of Jesus, the wife is acting in the role of the bride of Christ, the church, and our union together is constantly proclaiming the world that there's an incredible union that's ahead. There's the whole book, Song of Solomon, devoted to the celebration of marital sexual love. Proverbs 5 tells a young man, you need to keep yourself pure because there's an incredible experience with your wife when you get married on your first night, and you're going to really enjoy it. And that's why you shouldn't be intoxicated with false women that aren't connected with you, that you have no covenants with. Actually, Jesus himself said that he wanted to picture his ultimate union with his people, he himself, not just Paul. But if you turn to Matthew 22, we're going to find out that Jesus tells one of the most powerful stories about what he's doing in the world and what he's doing with the Jewish people, what he's doing with Gentile people, all under the imagery of what a lot of you ladies, you moms of the bride have done, getting the wedding invitations given, and you have to get all the things printed, you have to get them all addressed, you have to be careful that you send them out, and then you really want people to RSVP, which they hardly ever do in our culture, so it makes it really, really tough to figure out how many people are actually going to be there. Did you know that God the Father is pictured by Jesus as sending out wedding invitations? So in Matthew 22, I want you to look at this incredible story that Jesus told that has a wallop for a message. People died because of this message, and then people also received life. Look what it says. Matthew chapter 22, Jesus spoke to them again in parable saying, now the, the people, Jesus spoke to them, the them are the chief priests and the Pharisees. Jesus, during his last week in Jerusalem, is in this powerful debate, really an intense debate, with the Jewish leaders that control the religion in the temple in the first century. And so in the chapter previous of them, he just told them the story of the tenants that some of you might remember about the master that planted a vineyard and then put it out for people to take care of it. And then he sends his servants and they won't give him any money for the vineyard, won't give him the grape crop. He finally sends his son and his son gets killed. I mention that just so you understand that Jesus has just been in an intense debate with these guys. And look what he says. He's going to tell them something further about the way that God is working in their life. It says the kingdom of heaven is like. It doesn't say that the kingdom of heaven is. When you're trying to get a hold of heaven, when you're trying to get a hold of God's kingdom, we have to use metaphors. We have to use symbols. And, that, and that's beautifully done by the Lord Jesus. We don't really know totally what the kingdom of heaven is actually going to be. It doesn't say that, you, like, you men, for example, are going to be turned into women. Sometimes I go to marriage conferences, and all the, women are at, all the men are asked to, be, to be act like brides. That's the worst thing you can ask my hunting buddies to do. Please don't do that. That feminizes Christianity, and it's a misunderstanding of the like. Jesus later on is going to say, when we get to heaven, we're going to be like the angels, neither married or given in marriage. And you say, what does that mean? I don't know, because I haven't been over there yet. All I know is that it took the Lord only one day, according to Genesis, to make this incredible human being, this incredible human body, 
and yet we're going to have a body that's like his glorious body. I don't know that much about what our eternal state is going to be except that my precious Savior, it's going to be multiplied by the beauty and the endurance and the strength that we have now. It's going to be just multiplied by infinity. But the kingdom of heaven is like, this is analogy. We're going we're to go from what we know in this present life, and Jesus is going to tell us a story really rooted in the first century, and it's going to give us a, a glimpse of what he's doing spiritually in the world, and then a glimpse ultimately about what he's going to do ultimately at the end of time. Look what it says. The kingdom of heaven is like this. It's, the kingdom of heaven is like a king, a human king, it stresses in the text who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Don't you wish we could go back to first century cultures, you guys that have girls in your home? Because in the ancient culture, it was the bridegroom's daddy that sent out the wedding invitations. They'd work out and get betrothed. You'd work out with another family. Your boy would be betrothed to this girl, and they would be legally married. And that's what Mary and Joseph had when she came to Bethlehem. Then when it was time to culminate the marriage, the daddy would have a great big feast, not just a little one-night thing, not just a little reception at the end like us Americans. They would have, like in Morocco, they last all night long in the first century. Remember and John 2, they go on and on and on, and they run out of the wine, and that's the first miracle of Canaan of Galilee. The Jews would really celebrate in the first century. One of the things that shows that we're moving powerfully into individualism away from close community is that we have shorter and shorter marriage ceremonies and celebrations because we're, we're enamored with, we've got to get back to what we're individually really into. So that's something to be thinking about as a church family. How can we recapture some of that community? So that's what's going on here. The father throws this great big wedding banquet for his son. He sent out his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused. The idea is refuse is too strong at this time. They don't want to come. We start out with a progressing turning away from the invitation. So the idea is there's this daddy that's going to throw a great big wedding celebration for his son, he sends his servants out to give him the invitation. So the invitations are sent all over the city. People don't want to come. So what's going on? The story is going to intensify. The father gets upset about it. When people aren't responding to your first invitation, then you need to juice it up a little bit. You need to picture the meal. Then you can get the guys to come. You need to picture the incredible celebration going to be. So that's what he does in the next verse. Then he sends some more servants to tell those who have been invited that I prepared my dinner. I've slain my oxen. I fattened the cattle, and they've been butchered, and everything is ready. This is like saying, man, I'm going to take you to Dolph Briscoe. Man, I killed my, the best cow that I got. This is prime Omaha beef. This is going to be prime rib. The potatoes are all done. The string beans with mushroom all over, you can tell what I like, is all set. Man, this is not just the little crackers and cheese thing. You know, that you get at Costco's. This is a whopping, sit-down, prime rib kind of a meal. You can almost smell the steak that's being ready. Because everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. So he's intensified it, but they paid no attention to them. They went off, one to his field. So one was a farmer. He jumped back on his John Deere tractors, the idea. 
another to his business. Another guy was a merchant. By the way, this is the only time this word for a business is used in the New Testament, interesting enough. But this is a tradesman that's going to jump on his ship, sail to Phoenicia, go down to Persia, get some spices, and, and maybe even have silk on the, on the silk road. He's going to be totally involved in making money. So we have another rejection. So the first one, they don't want to come. The next one say, I'm just too busy. Now, all of you are going to meet people just like this. As we talk about spiritual things, we talk about God sending out his invitation. Because what is God inviting people to come? He's inviting them to come to union with his son, to come and celebrate his son. All of the universe, all of the people on the earth are divided into those that respond to this incredible bridegroom named Jesus and those that don't come. Don't respond to him at all. And I want you to see that you're going to have a whole gradation. In fact, in this audience this morning, you have the gradation. Some of you are just not willing. You just don't want to. You're just not into that. You don't have feelings hardly one way or the other. The second group are just plain too busy. They're too busy farming. They're too busy ranching. They're too busy in their commercial enterprise. That's where a lot of our American culture is. Only now is an incredible time because we found out, hey, man, materialism can crash. So this is a great time because there's yearning in the heart. There's got to be something more. So you have those people. You're going to have people that just, it's just not on their radar screen. You're going to have other people that hear the invitation, but they're just too busy for it. But the third group, I want you to know this is very important to recognize, there's going to be hostility. If you give invitations to the Son of God's banquet, to his wedding ceremony, there's going to be those around the world, and this is happening in our world today, where it isn't just, I don't care, I'm too busy, but it is, I hate the ground that you stand on, and I'm going to take you out. He said, David, what are you talking about? Well, Jesus talks. He says, the rest seized his servants, and they mistreated them and killed them. And that's when we studied the prophets. Remember, we learned how when the prophets gave their message, like a prophet like Jeremiah gave his message, they took him, threw him in a pit. They tried to kill him. We have Zechariah, who's one of the prophets in 2 Chronicles, that is martyred near the end of 2 Chronicles. So Jesus will say from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Zechariah was a prophet that tried to speak to the children of Israel, tried to warn them about the judgment to come, about the promises of God, and they killed him. In this context, and I want you to understand this, we live in a culture that says everything is pluralistic, everything is tolerant. It isn't. In fact, one of the reasons why I know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life is that I can talk to you about positive thinking, I can talk to an audience about how they can sell better, kind of really womp them up to have real hope and, and to have power in their life. And as soon as I say, but you know, all that's going to crash down. And ultimately, you're going to be hopeless unless you've met Jesus, the Son of God, who died on the cross for you and arose again. And suddenly, the lines are crossed. It's incredible. And that's always the way it is because there really isn't truth in that. Now, as the followers of Jesus, we're not to take the sword. We're following a great Savior who said, put your sword up, Peter. Don't cut people's head off, especially if you're a bad swordsman and you miss and hit his ear. One of the incredible things is that we follow a Savior who's the most powerful warrior in the world, and one day he's going to come in great power and glory and conquer everyone against him. But right now, he tells us that we need to give out the invitation. 
And he says some of us could face incredible persecution for it because he did. It says the rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. When do you think that took place? That took place in 70 A.D. Because Jesus is talking to a group of people, the Jewish people, and, and it's not ethnic. And Jesus is Jewish. All the people listening to the book at this time, listening to his message, are Jewish. So it's not anti-Semitic. Everybody in this room needs to understand. If you kill God's prophets, if people that respond to God's prophets, like the Old Testament prophets, like John the Baptist, and then ultimately in the first century, those that responded to Jesus, if you kill them, like if you kill Stephen, the Lord will give a Damascus Road experience to Saul. But the other people that threw stones, if they don't turn around, there's going to come a day. And part of that day comes in history where the almighty righteous justice of God takes you out. I want you to hear that really strong. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor, and the German Lutheran church turned totally away from the Bible. They turned to a total commitment to German nationalism. They committed themselves to the eternality of German soil and German blood. And they devoted themselves. They took oaths of allegiance for Hitler. Jews were being killed. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, though he was here in the United States and could have just stayed free as a teacher, he was so burdened that he went back because he had founded a confessing church. And the confessing church said that Jesus alone is the one that we swear allegiance to. And then he realized how serious the situation was. He became part in trying to take Hitler out. He was arrested, and just before the deliverance, he lost his life in prison. So you say, well, he lost. He followed the wrong Savior. No, he didn't. Because who took Hitler out? God took the ones that butchered his Jewish people, his physical people, and took his children. And by the way, a lot of the people, I learned when I was in Poland that there were mighty movements during the Holocaust. Many of the people had been Jews that had become followers of the Messiah. And they were bold witnesses. I heard stories that I've never heard before that you hardly ever hear in the Holocaust discussions. Because the spirit of Jesus is always at work. But when you put your finger and you start blaspheming and attacking and hurting God's people, watch out. So if you decided to follow Jesus, I want that to give you incredible strength today. I want it to give you power because you don't need to feel afraid. Your heavenly daddy is going to fight for you. That's what this text is about. So the Jewish people rejected Jesus, put him on a cross. It was all part of his plan. He offered the plan of salvation to them. Many of them continued to reject him. In the first time of the, of the church, they persecuted the church, tried to snuff it out. In 70 AD, the Roman army came, and there was no longer a temple and no longer the city of Jerusalem. And the Jewish people really didn't get back home until 1948. And the Word of God's very honest about the power of our Savior. Don't mess with him. So I, that needs to be part of your intimacy with the Lord that you walk with him and you realize his justice. You realize that he demands obedience. And if you come to know him, it's through his power. 
But that's what's going on here. He says that the servants that murdered his son, were gonna, their city was destroyed and they were taken out. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready. Now, this is where all of us get in that are non-Jews. But those I invited did not deserve to come. They didn't deserve to come because they ignored it, because they were too busy, and then because some of them were intensely hostile to it. They go to the street corner, invite to the banquet anyone who you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad. So the present church that is part of the kingdom of God is going to have good people in it and bad people in it. It's going to be a mixed group, just like the weed and tears illustration. So don't try to find a church that doesn't have any bad people in it. Because if you do, you're going to ruin it. This is really important. I have brothers and sisters in Christ. They spend their whole life looking for a group of people that doesn't have any bad people in it. They get really discouraged because they get to know believers, and some of them lie, some of them steal, some of them are immoral. The story gets really, really bad. So they, they opt out. Jesus was really honest. In this present age, in among any church, there will be good and bad. Let the Lord figure that out. The wedding hall was filled. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed there was a man who was not wearing his wedding clothes. Friend, he said, or or companion, he said, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants to tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Say, what are you talking about? What in the world is going on in this text? Who is this guy? Remember, I just told you the church is going to have good and bad. And what this passage does, it tells me, Dave, if you say that you follow Christ, if you've really trusted in Christ, then he actually came to live inside of you. And one of the ways that it pictures him living inside of you is in Hosea 2, God said that when people responded to him, that finally when his people responded to them, he would give them the gift of his righteousness, the gift of his covenant loyalty, the gift of his forgiveness. It would be given as a wedding garment. In the ancient world, one of the things that a bridegroom needed to do, it wasn't like in our culture where the father and mother of the bride have to put out all the money for the wedding dress. In fact, in the ancient world, one of the major things that a a bridegroom did is he provided for his wife. So he would give her a gorgeous dress. He would give her gorgeous jewels. And this is true in some of the, this is still true in some of the Middle Eastern cultures. What this text is saying biblically and what Matthew says is that when you trust in Jesus, when Matthew comes to fruition and Jesus dies on the cross and Jesus rises again, if you trust in Jesus, then he becomes the bridegroom that dresses you. I want to understand that it's not just make-believe. If Jesus is really in your life, if you really do know Jesus, then Revelation 19 will say that you're dressed in fine linen and this fine linen are the righteous acts of the saints. One of the things the New Testament does is it combines. It combines incredible grace and the position that you have in Jesus, but it also stresses, like in Ephesians, it says that you've been saved by grace, but you've also been ordained for good works. And those two things go hand in hand. Always faith and grace first, but faith and grace produce real transformed lives. And there should be a progression. 
it warns those that are in a church like ours, and they say, I'm in because I said the right creed. But as I speak to you today, if there's nothing in your heart that's stirring you as a husband saying, man, I don't want to just be lethargic. I really want Jesus to be part of my life. I don't want to just be too busy in marketing. I don't want to just be so busy with my job that I don't really care about Jesus. It's as I've been telling you, as I read this story and and Jesus said, now I want you to go out into the byways. I want you to go into the business world. I want you to go into the athletic world. I want you to use all of your talents. Everybody that you meet, I want you to give out the invitation around the world. If as I talk to you about that, nothing happens, then you really need to get alone with the Lord and really ask yourself whether he's come in. But all of you, as I'm speaking to you, that have really genuinely responded to Christ, when I talk to you about your wedding garments, that thrills you because your bridegroom, the eternal Son of God, has given you an incredible gift. You have a part of you that has a hunger that wants to let his spirit work through you to do good works. And that's why, as we talk to you about ways that you can get involved in helping people, whether it's the prisons or whether it's being tutored with people at school, or we're going to have an opportunity later in the year to build homes right here in Midlothian, the modular parts, and we're going to ship them to Haiti. There's all kinds of opportunities. What Jesus does in life is he produces an incredible passion to do those good works. Now you say, well, Dave, what does this have to do with our marriage? Jesus is saying that ultimately there's going to be a time when you're totally fulfilled. There's going to be a great wedding celebration. And you've been clothed with his righteousness. You've been clothed with his forgiveness. And he works in your life. But eventually there's going to come a time when you're finally home with him. It's not going to be a funeral service. It's going to be, the symbol is, it's going to be like the greatest celebration, the greatest joyful, happy time that you've ever had. And if you understand that, then you realize that you're growing older in your marriage, that you're not measuring your life like Michael Douglas is, now I'm getting old. And now I need to try to live a little bit longer. I need to try to live in these young kids that I produce. Instead, you can be grandparents and great-grandparents. And you can get to your great-great-grandparents and you say, man, you tell those great-great-grandkids, I've only just begun. Because all of this is just a shadow, all the joys, all the intimacy, all the exhilarating pleasures that I have in marriage, both sexual and companionship and just the incredible friendship, all that is just a pointer to the fact that ultimately we're going to be experiencing those good gifts and they're going to last forever and ever and ever. Then you don't make your present marriage try to hold up too much. And you're able to handle. Every one of you has feelings of this isn't good enough. In fact, one of your big crises in your life is when finally you go up and go, this just doesn't add up. This isn't what I really wanted. And what I want to understand is that Jesus is saying that you shouldn't reach and have illegitimate relationships and illegitimate passions. He's saying no, that you need to realize that only he can fulfill those ultimate desires. And the more you rest in him, the more you will show grace towards one another. 
and grace, especially in your marriages. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to not just let the invitation pass us by. Help us not to be too busy. I'd ask you, Lord, that you'd powerfully drive home that you are a holy, just God, that we don't need to be intimidated because we've got an incredible king that we're following. Father, I thank you so much that our present marriages and the celebrations that we have do point us forward and give us a taste of eternity. I'd ask your Lord that you would generate lots and lots of conversations based upon what I just said in Matthew 22. I just pray that you would stir your people about what we've learned. Give them conversations with couples that are really trying to have eternity now in their marriages and it's failing. Give them conversations with couples that are blowing apart because they're trying to find heaven in illicit love. I'd ask you, Lord, that you would give endurance to couples that are working through some really hard personality issues, and it's really hard for them to fit. I'd ask you, Lord, that what we learned today, that this is a journey, that we're not home yet, that we don't have to believe that our marriages are going to be perfect because they're only pointers to what will be perfect. And I just pray that your spirit would use that incredible truth from Matthew 22 that's reemphasized again in Revelation 19 to help each one that's here to fall in love with the Savior, to let him be the ultimate lover of their soul, the ultimate companion. And then, Lord, I just pray that your spirit would fuel each one of my brothers and sisters to do those good works flowing from grace, flowing from the joy that you give so that our wedding garments would be perfect and complete and bring great glory to you when we're finally home. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.